told in both the Old and the New Testament that God is a restorer. In fact, Yahweh is restorer. Now, last week and for the next couple weeks, we're reminded that we're a Bible-reading and Bible-believing church. But just because we read and know something doesn't mean that we always expect it. My favorite movie director is M. Night Shyamalan, and he's probably best well-known for his big twist endings. You see, at this point, with every new movie that comes out, the twist isn't a surprise anymore. We know that it's coming. And yet, without giving too much away, upon seeing his latest film in theaters, my friends and I found ourselves standing on our feet, screaming at the screen, honestly disturbing everyone else in the entire theater, because that big twist ending. We knew it was coming, but we still didn't expect it. Now, I know that God is a restorer because I've read it in both the Old Testament and the New. But if I'm honest, I don't know if I expect him to restore. When I live in the most diverse neighborhood of Louisville and still all my neighbors are white, I wonder, is God still restoring today? When slavery was abolished in 1865, but I know that the majority of our prison labor workers are black men, I wonder, is God today still restoring? When I recognize prejudice in almost every honest conversation that I have, when I know that Louisville is still the fourth most segregated city in the country, I wonder, is God still restoring? You see, I know that God is a restorer, but when I sit in the midst of my circumstance and my understanding, if I'm honest, I don't know if I always expect it. Thank you so much. Uh, and one more time for our worship team. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for... Um, uh, for leading us today, um, I uh, I'm goofy, so um, you know some of you all just uh, got a preview or a glimpse of what it grew up to look uh, in, in in the old Black Baptist Church there, and, uh, and I won't complain. And, uh, and I was happy for my vanilla guitar players up there able to keep up. Yeah, that's how you know. That's how you know, man. We got some skilled people. They didn't get lost in it, and uh, they just rolled with it. So. That's pretty cool, and uh, so I appreciate, man, thank you, Scooby, and to the team, man, for leading us today, and uh, man, um, so I'm just excited. Um, now I know, um, I know what happens at 1210 today, and um, just as you all know, and, uh, but we've been having worship, so we're going to continue on with the word. Is that all right? Okay, all right, I hope about one person was with me, so the rest of y'all was like, cool, little black preacher, man, hurry up, let's get going. All right, so, uh, so we're in our second installment of the series, Jehovah, and, um, and as uh, the, such a, a well-done video Aaron um, shared with us is that uh, we're asking the questions, uh, essentially, does the God whom we read about, uh, is he still actively doing the things that we see in scripture on this day? And, um, and my, uh, my subject for today is, uh, is he still a restore? Does God still restore? Does he still restore? So if you have your Bibles, I ask that you open them up to uh, Psalm 51. And I will just be reading three quick verses, verses 10 through 12. Uh, 
three of my most favorite, one of my most favorite passages in Psalms of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 51, verses 10 through 12. And, of course, as always, it will be available for you on the screen. <clears throat> and uh, this is what you will find, uh, the Psalm of David. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain. Amen. So as you're looking at it, um, and everything combines last week, Pastor Matt talked about forgiver, as he mentioned earlier, uh, but there, there's, there's a follow-up question, and so I always tell people that whenever you ask a question, there's always a follow-up question that could better help to expand your thoughts or your thinking or the idea in which you're studying, and so the follow-up question is, if God does forgive, then what next? And I think restoration is that God forgives, but what's the next point of it? And uh, that's what we are dealing with in our scripture today. And I believe what David is talking about is the God that we read uh, in history, the same God for us today. And if he does forgive, then what does that mean for those of us who are the forgiven? Now, I'm not smart, so in order for me to kind of understand where we're going I always try to define if you study with me I define every word to a T I mean whether it is the old language or I pull up the Webster's or dictionary.com I try to define every word to make sure that I have a clear understanding and also that I can present it to you so I wanted to know when we're talking about a restore and restoration what is restoration defined and this is what you'll find if you were to look up restoration it says it is to turn back to bring back to original existence, use, function, or position. So when we're reading David's psalm, this portion of the psalm, here's what he's saying as a great model. He's, he's sinned and he's repented. He's turned back to God. He is trying to get back on track. He knows that he's forgiven. But the question David is asking is, am I now the forgiving one Am I able to be used by God again? Because I am forgiven, I have chosen, am I still the same David that God anointed and chose and raised up so that I could be in God's presence again? So David is asking, does God restore? Will God turn back the clock on our relationship so that things will be as though they have never happened before? Has my sin been truly wiped clean? Has the slate been wiped clean. And so I was looking at this, and, and in our culture today, what we have, a, we have a whole lot of kind of DIY restoration shows, right? Any of y'all watch any of those? Anybody? Yeah, I, I don't, because if I watch it, that means I have to do something. So, um, but there's a lot of them. There's even one that's, nest, that's specifically called Restore, and, uh, and, I, and I love it, because what you'll see is they take homes and furniture and vehicles and you name it, and they'll take something that is seemingly useless, worthless, and bring it back almost to its original or a greater value by restoring it what the beauty is there. What I love about it, though, is not so much about the finished product, I love thinking about the restore. Because the restorer, in order for them to do the work that they are doing, they have to have a pretty amazing eye for that work. They have to be able to look at that home. They have to be able to look at that car, that piece of furniture. They have to be able to look at it and see the beauty that exists on the inside of it. So I've got some examples for you. So Christina, roll with me. Uh, you know, look at this house right here. 
Now, if that were me, um, first of all, I think it's perhaps haunted, so I wouldn't go in. And, uh, but there's no way that I would look at this house and I'd say, okay, man, that's a beautiful house. But a restorer who has an eye for this would look at this house and this is what they saw. They saw that right there. I, I don't have that gift, but there's someone who does. They looked at that old picture. They said, that house can become this. Or, or take, take, take a vehicle, for instance. Take a vehicle. Um, if somebody saw this car, I'd, uh, I'd call the, uh, the junk man, and I'd get my $75 uh, from the junk man for turning it in, and, uh, and I'd just be through with that car. But there is a restorer who would look at this car, and they'd see that right there. Now, I don't have that eye, but it takes a king and an amazing eye to look at that raggedy piece of vehicle and say, man, I can turn that into this. Or, or furniture, for instance. We got a chase at home. Thank God it doesn't look like that. They see this chase right here, and they see this hideous piece of furniture. It probably stinks. You know, got bed bugs. You know, you name it. It's, it's real rough right now. The restorer, however, with their amazing eye would see this gift right here. There has to be an amazing king's special eye to look at something like that and say, man, there is something beautiful that could come out of it that time and wreckage and, and life and issues could happen to it and it could be ruined almost to a state of no use and someone with their special eye could look at it and say kingly that there is beauty that exists exists within this piece of furniture and regardless of the damage, the wreck and the ruin, they see its potential. Well, the same rule applies to you and I. Restoration is possible because the great restorer looks at our lives and regardless of what time has done, regardless of the issues that we have experienced, regardless of the wreckage that we have endured, the great restorer looks at us and in spite of the sin and the chaos in our lives that has riddled our bodies and our souls, he looks at us and he says, I see the beauty in you. And he desires to bring that beauty out of you. This is what's taking place in our story today. This is, uh, this is what King David is hoping for as he is writing this psalm, penning this psalm. It's, it's long, man. In your own time, please read the entire Psalm 51, and uh, it'll be beautiful for you. But I'm going to connect the dots because there's a backstory to why David wrote this psalm. David, David is essentially asking God in this psalm, what's unspoken is, does God still see the person that he loved, he called, he chosen, and he anointed? David wanted to know, does God still see that in me? Why is that? Well, the story is, the story is, if you read back in Sam, 2 Samuel chapter 11, what you'll discover is that in the springtime when most kings were off the war, David was at home for some reason we don't know. Many people speculate as to what happened. He's home, and he couldn't sleep at night for some reason. He was up late at night. He got up out of his bed, and he walked upon the roof of his palace. And while he was on the roof of his palace, David, from afar at a distance, saw a fine, pretty young thing on top of a roof bathing. All right. David was on his rooftop and from afar, he saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. Now, listen, I know some of you all watch uh, old movies where they try to make everything G-rated for all families. But trust me, what David did not see was a woman who was hiding herself in a shade. David saw this beautiful woman on top of a roof taking a bath. And rather than just leaving it there, David, David further inquired of her and asked his people, yo, who's that chick that I saw taking a bath on top of the roof? 
he asked that question, and uh, even after he asked the question, if, if it was not enough, they told him, hey, that is Bathsheba. This is who her daddy is. This is who her mommy is. This is where she comes from. Oh, and by the way, yo, she's Uriah the Hittite's wife. David got all the necessary information about Bathsheba, and rather than leaving things as is, David called for her. All right, I can dig it. I get, that's, that's who her daddy is. That's who her mom She's from what tribe? Okay, that's her husband. Where's he at? He's at war. Oh, okay, cool. Bring her to me. And David inquires and has the woman brought to the palace while her husband was off to war. And I don't have to tell you what happened, happened. Story goes on a little bit further. Time goes on. Uriah, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Bathsheba is sent back home. Her, her husband is still off the war. And David gets a message from Bathsheba saying, oh, I'm pregnant. And so this is like, you know, David's like Usher. This is his confession. <laughs> yeah. Just when he thought he said all he could say, his chick on the side says she's got one on the way. <laughs> this is his confession. Um, He gets word that Bathsheba is pregnant, um, and he starts to do what we always do. Because one of the things that we always do, you know what? If you ever want to find out how creative you are, sin. Yeah, yeah. I always listen to people when we say, man, I, I, just, I just don't know how to work things out. But I'm always amazed at when we see and how creative we get. When you want what you want, you always figure out ways to get it, don't you? Oh, it's just me. Yeah, we're always so creative. So David got creative. He says, um, you're pregnant. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, somebody go to where the soldiers are, call her husband and tell him to come here. David brought him to the crib. He whined and dined him, got him drunk. And, you know, he says, man, man he's drunk. I'm going to tell you, you know what? You ain't going to go back to war. Since you're home, you're kicking it. You got a little wine, and I'm going to send you back home to your wife. David hoping that Uriah would sleep with his wife, and then time would go on, and Uriah would think that Bathsheba is pregnant with his baby. Well, it didn't work out the way that David planned for Uriah. He was a faithful man. He didn't even want to go to his own house because he felt like I needed to be out there with my brothers warring for the kingdom. And so he refused to go in. He wouldn't go. And so David says, well, since I can't get him to sleep with his wife to claim the baby, the next logical thing to do is I'll just kill him. So David has Uriah killed. He murders Bathsheba's husband. And then he takes her to be his own wife. Let me, let me share with you why David wrote this song. You pick up in the next chapter, in chapter 12, verse 1, and this is what you'll find in 2 Samuel. The Lord sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Because even though we can creep, God always sees. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it and grew up with him and his six children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had came to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David said to Nathan, you are the man. You, you are the man. 
I love, I love David's response, don't you? As surely as the Lord lives, that man's got to die for stealing that little lamb. And Nathan says, yeah, that, that dude I'm talking about is you. you. You are that man. Now, in reading this, sometimes we can be too hard on David. And we can look at David and we can say, man, David got nerve. You know, we've done that too. They, they got nerve for pointing out my flaws or doing these things. They got, they got nerve. They got nerve, man, for doing that to them people or for speaking that the nerve of them. Look at them with their sinful selves. But oftentimes what happens when we find ourselves so far gone or so, so, so deep in our sin, we forget that we're sinning and we look at other people and we say, man, listen, God got to do something about them. God has to do something. David had clearly gotten beside himself, and so Nathan approached him in a manner where David could see the flaw and the sin within himself. And I can understand it because there have been times when I've looked at other people, and I looked at their lives, and I say, you know what, man, listen, God, God, God needs to deal with them. God, God needs to take care of them. And there's been so many times when I've been convicted, like, there are places in my life where I, I've been so lost and so deep in my sin that I forget that I'm even sinning and the nerve of me to turn my nose up at somebody else. Oh, 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 and let's not talk about those of us who know about grace, who have a theological idea that even when we sin, that sin does not, does not condemn us to hell. Oh, those of us, men who know about grace, we are wonderful at this because we know that I can go, but God won't let go of me. God won't let me go. What I'll tell you is this, real clearly, listen to me. Grace doesn't dismiss the power of sin. It only eliminates the penalty of sin. And sometimes we get so consumed with grace, which is a good thing, that we forget about the fact that sin is so powerful that God had to put together a plan to come to the planet to die so that sin would not wipe us out. So grace then does not become a license to sin. Grace becomes a lesson for us to learn how to get in right fellowship with God. It doesn't dismiss the power of sin. It just saves us from the penalty of sin. I have to address this in context so that you'll see just how, how, how robust David's plea actually is, but also how remorseful he feels at this stage. But remember, remember the restore? And, uh, and how I, I mentioned that the, the restore has to have a special keen eye in order to see the beauty in the property. There's a difference, though. When it comes to the cars, the houses, the furniture, or whatever it may be, uh, those inanimate objects, they, they really don't have no part to play in the process. Simply the restorer sees what the need is, and the restorer then comes in and deals with the issue at hand. The difference between us as those who need to be restored and a home or a car or a piece of furniture is they are not in partnership with the restore. Us as people, there is a partnership that must take place. Namely this, the restorer sees the mess and decides to deal with the mess. When it comes to humanity, the mess must recognize it has a need for a restore. God can clean us up, but in order to be restored, we must recognize that we need him. We need the restorer to be inside of us. The mess must know that it needs a miracle. And this is what David saw. This was his need, which is why his request was, create in me a pure heart, O oh God. 
and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And because David was so desperate for change, his request was, God, no, don't just clean me up. Don't just scrub me clean. God, what I need you to do is to make me new again. I need you to take what's broken and what's sinful inside of me. I need you to take it, remove it from me, and give me something that is new. And I love it. I love it. The language here is when he's saying create in me. That word create is a Hebrew bara. It's the same word that is used in Genesis 1 and 1 when God says, or when the, the writer says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The same language. David knew what he was saying. He was saying, God, listen, I, I don't want to be the same that I am today. I don't want the same challenge the same problem clearly there is something broken and sinful on the inside of me so God rather than you cleaning me up or scrubbing me clean how about you take out this impure dirty heart and give me something that is completely new clean me up God don't just make me feel better make me better make me better I thought about that because that's my posture I talk about me because I don't want to assume that you all are like me. My posture is, God, just remove the shame and the guilt from me, and I'll be okay. Like, just let, let me not feel as bad this time. Let, let me not feel so guilty this time, God, and I'll be okay. David says, feeling better is not enough for me. I don't want to just feel better, God. Make me better. Make me me new because I'm sick of being where I am. I am tired of the place and where I've been. God, help me so that I can be new. And with David's prayer, when he's saying create, he's literally saying, by your almighty power can this and this alone be done. It can't happen through three steps to health. It can't happen through me following some plan, God. The only way that I'm going to get better is that your almighty power comes and it changes me. David says, not only that, but, but I want you to renew a spirit, a steadfast spirit within me. And here's the question then. If we want to be restored... The answer is the first step anyhow towards restoration is knowing that you have a need to being restored. And that the great restore has something to work with. You have to make yourself available to him. You have to be. And the challenge for us as people is making ourselves vulnerable to God. Making ourselves available to him. This is what Isaiah talks about in, 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 in chapter 40 when he says, Even the youth shall grow tired and weary, and the young men will stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, they will renew their strength. What Isaiah was saying right there is, I understand where you are, but eventually it's going to catch up to you. And what you've got to know is that God knows where you are. So if you only admit that you have a need for him, he sees what's going to happen to you in advance. And he will make sure that if you place your hope in him, he will renew your strength. And at some point in time, we must and we have to find ourselves in a position where we understand that we need the restoration of the Lord. So David places his hope in the Lord and therefore he makes his request specific. God, give me a new heart because I don't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Have you ever, um, you ever been there? You ever been tired of repeating the same mistakes, anybody? Yeah, man, just over and over again. I'll listen to David in this because I, I know his story. I mean, I can read his story. 
This, this, this isn't the first time that David has been here. David's got a bit of a pattern of behavior here. And so the reason why his plea is so robust and it is so dynamic is because he understands the condition of his heart. Check this out, check this out. David was so bad. Y'all got to, the Bible is, is fascinating. David was so bad with his lust. Check this out. When he was an old man and they wanted to see as to whether or not David was alive, they said, bring a young virgin to him to keep him warm. And if David doesn't sleep with her, we know that he's probably on his dying bed. That's how bad David was. He was so filled with lust. They knew that if he don't want to touch a woman, we know that he's probably on his way out. So I listen to David's struggle, and I hear his plea, and David is saying, God, renew a steadfast spirit within me because I am tired of being who I am. So, God, I don't want you to just make me feel better. Take out what's sinful on the inside of me and give me by your almighty power something that will make me new. And then he continues to listen to his emotions. They grow deeper. Do not cast from me your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Now check this out. He said, do not cast me from your spirit. Theologically, I guarantee you, you can read the rest of his writings. David knows that the Lord will not condemn him, that he's not going to give up him, that he's not going to show. He understands that theologically, but he's speaking from the pain of his heart because he feels like I've done enough. But God, you should separate yourself from me. I've disappointed you so much, God. Why, why would you even, why would you, you want to be there? So his plea becomes, God, listen, I, I understand that I've disappointed you. I understand that I've failed enough, God, but please, please don't separate yourself from me. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And so this is, this is about the pain that comes from repentance. And whether or not you know it, man, there, there, there is pain when we make mistakes, when we sin, when we feel separated from God, there's pain that we have to deal with. And what David is doing is he's handing his pain over to God because when we don't hand our pain over to God, sometimes our pain can get the best of us and it can tear us down. It can dismantle our lives. It can dismantle our emotions and our health. And so David is giving his pain over to the Lord, recognizing that I have done enough that anybody should separate yourself, God. And I know that you want, but I just want to make it clear, God, I'm hurting so bad because I've disappointed you. So, God, don't, don't, don't take it from me. But I think there's still a part of that that we got to recognize that some things I don't think we have to say to God because God's not the one who needs to hear that story. We, we say that stuff to humanity. We don't say it to God. So, although I understand where David's coming from, I kind of disagree with his posture. I, I thought about I thought about man, um, um, the story of a young girl named Rachel. Rachel uh, grew up in a single-parent home with just her and her mom. Her dad lived just a few blocks away from them and had a whole new family, didn't want anything to do with Rachel. Rachel's mom suffered from depression. They were never really truly connected. And Rachel, she suffered tremendously as a result of her father who was distant, who wanted nothing to do with her. Her mom, who was in the home yet, had no emotional capacity for her. And so she left there suffering in silence. When she got in high school, man, she, she, she met a boy. And for the first time somebody showed her some attention and she was happy to have that attention and so since he showed her some attention she gave all of herself to him 
And she, she, she enjoyed it because for the first time she felt loved. And, and even though sometimes he cheated on her, it was okay because he apologized for it. And then eventually, a, a couple of years later, he started physically abusing her. But it was okay because he always apologized and gave her a gift. And the older that she got, the behavior just kind of kept going. It kept going over and over again because people would do what they needed to do to get from her what they desired. And as long as they said, I'm sorry, said, I love you, or gave her something, she was perfectly fine with the behavior. A friend of hers, when she became an older woman, asked her, why do you keep dealing with that? She says, well, at least they are paying attention to me. Or, or I thought about a young boy named Alan. Alan, man, had both mom and dad at home. But mom and dad, this was a Christian home, by the way. Mom and dad, they really, they really, you know, appreciated Alan, I suppose. But nothing Alan ever did was good enough. Uh, if he went to school and one time he got five A's and one B, they wanted to know how come you only have five A's? How come not six A's? How come you failed us there with the six A's? Alan got in a relationship and his girlfriend wasn't good enough for his parents. Well, how come she's not as smart and as pretty as your cousin's girlfriend? How, how come she has this family background and nothing Alan ever did was enough and so Alan eventually because of the numbness of the relationship of his parents and of his family as a high school junior started taking heroin and at 16 years old he shot himself until he went to sleep and never woke up again he died as a drug OD just trying to figure out how to how to numb the pain I think about Rachel and I think about Alan and I think about the situations in our lives where just like David, we want to ascribe certain behaviors to God that are unlike him. And what happens then is that we try to numb ourselves from the reality of the pain that we experience. And so when we talk to God, we talk to God as though God is, or how God treats us is based upon how humanity deals with us. But that's always the inappropriate way of looking at God. We look at the faithfulness of God and we ascribe to God certain values and we look to humanity and we become disappointed at humanity because humanity can never be like God. But we never look at humanity and say, God, how come you can't be like them? David, because of the rejection, I'm sure his father rejected him. When he went and saw, before he fought Goliath, King Saul rejected him. His brothers rejected him. He experienced rejection so much in his life. And so now that he's dealing with the pain of his sin, he's looking at God. And I think he's speaking from the rejection of those situations. But that is not God. God does not reject us based upon what humanity sees or does. God simply loves us because we are his children and we are created in his image. If I understand David's prayer, it don't mean that I necessarily agree with you. And then finally in verse 12, you'll see this. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David says, give me a new heart and also give me the joy that I had when I first met you. And I, I thought about this and I thought about new relationships. Anybody ever been in a new relationship? Yeah. You remember new relationships and how sweet they were? You remember, man, everything that you could find out about that individual you did in order to make them happy. That was your goal. You like flowers? What kind of flowers? What type of music do you like? You like food? What kind of food do you like? Whatever. What's your favorite colors? Anything that you could find out, you wanted to find out because your main goal was the happiness, not of yourself, but of the other person. And for the earliest days of the relationship, your main objective was finding out what makes them happy. But then time, time goes on. And all of a sudden, we don't get joy out of making the other person happy. 
we're too busy looking at what makes us happy. And what happens here, what David is asking for, is he remembers the days of his early relationship with God. Man, when he would study his word, that's how he knew about creating its beginning. When, when, he would, when he would understand scripture and when he served at the church, when he was so excited to get the ark back for God that he danced himself literally out of his clothes, David started reflecting and said, God, clearly something has become stale in my spiritual relationship. And rather than me, God, I don't want you to take me back. Don't take me back to that. God, give me something new. Restore to me. Make it new again in my life so that I can experience the joy that I experienced before when I first met you. This is the depths of David's prayer, God. Give me the newness that even though I've been in relationship with you for so many years, give me the newness, man, that when people called my name, I couldn't wait to get to church. I couldn't wait to be there. I couldn't wait to celebrate you with you. I couldn't wait to sing your songs and to study your word and to serve in the church. Uh, David is asking for the joy that is freeing when you just want to get closer to someone that you love. So I'm looking at David's behavior and his posture. And essentially what he's asking the people or he's asking of God is, I, I know where I've been. And, and I know where I want to go. And I know that I don't want to be what I used to be. But God, it's not good enough for me to be better than what I am right now. I don't want to be better, God. I want to be made new. And so, God, in order for me to become new, what I need for you to do is to empower me by your Holy Spirit to experience a new relationship that only comes by being connected to you. And so then the question that we're asking today is, does God restore? Well, I think if we look at David's life, we'll see that the Lord actually did for him, which means that he still can for you. If you continue to read in this story, you'll figure out, man, there were some problems, right? Immediately after this, man, listen, the, the baby that he and Bathsheba were pregnant with, they ended up losing the baby. David grieved the loss of the baby. Not only that, man, one of his sons actually raped his own sister. And not only that, one of his other sons actually tried to overthrow his kingdom. And, and, and we believe that this is kind of like, you know, just, just you know, some byproducts of David kind of messing up some things. Not saying that God repays you for your sin. Don't look at it from like that. These are just issues in David's life. David experiences this pain and things happen. But then after that, what you'll discover is that Bathsheba gets pregnant again. And the many battles that David had fought before the issue with Bathsheba came, there were some more battles, even with some of the same people. Uh, uh, Goliath was, 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 was of a certain nation, the Philistines, and they soon fought the Philistines again and defeated the Philistines. God allowed David not only to have victory before the sin, even after the sin, he allowed him to have the same or similar victories again, letting David know essentially that I'm still with you and I heard your cry and your plea and things got better for David. Not only that, the boy that Bathsheba was pregnant with the second time, maybe some of you all know him. His name is Solomon. 
And Solomon grows up to be the greatest king in the history of Israel. He lived an entire lifetime on a throne without war. So does God restore or did God restore David? Well, absolutely. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Not only this, check this out. If you read in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 1, you'll see David's name. And then you'll see Bathsheba and you'll see Solomon. And if you go 28 generations later, you'll find a guy by the name of Joseph. Joseph becomes the earthly father of Jesus the Christ. So does God restore? Well, God took a relationship that began in adultery. And from that adulterous relationship, God raised up a man to lead and become the earthly father of Jesus the Christ, our Savior. Does God restore? Why, yes, he does restore. He can take that sinful relationship and bring salvation to all humanity. This is the same thing that Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus wanted to know, how do we experience what you're talking about? Jesus says to Nicodemus, the only way you can experience what I'm talking about is that you be restored. You may be familiar with it. He calls it being born again. Some of you want to know, man, does God still restore? Well, listen, every child of God that is in here today, everybody who has been blood-bought by the blood of the Lamb, you have been restored. Your life has been new. I don't know if that's telling me to be quiet or what it is. I'll say this last thing. What does restoration mean for us? Um, some of you are familiar with the prophet Joel and his scripture. God says, I will restore unto you the years. And you may already have Jesus in your life, but you're wanting to know, Am, does restoration come for me when I feel like Jesus, or I feel like David? The reality is, yes, it does. And here's how we know. When, G when the Lord speaks to Joel, what he's saying to him in Joel chapter 2 and 25, when he says, I will restore the years to you, what he's saying, it's not that I'm going to rewind the clock, but I'm going to make your latter years more fruitful than the years before. So when we spend our energy trying to understand or hoping for things to get better or to become like they were before, the promise of God is not that things will be like they were before, but I'll make your latter years greater than your former years. I'll make things so good for you that you won't even remember what you experienced before. I will restore the years to you, and I'll give you the life, the fruitful life that I promised for you. Amen? Let me pray and let us prepare to go. God, thank you that you are faithful and that you are the great restorer. But God, help us so that our, we don't, we don't get confined by the sin that so easily entangles us, but we recognize, God, that you, are with us. And God, we pray that you will truly restore unto us the years that we may become more like you. God, make us new again. For every person who is here today, every person who feels like they can't, or sometimes feel like they're suffocated by life, God, I pray that they experience newness that only comes from you. 
And God, that you would give them strength to carry on. And God, as we gather at the table today, Lord, where we receive the bread and the cup, may we remember, God, the only reason you sacrificed your body and that you shed your blood was so that we could be restored. So God, you are a master at seeing a mess and turn it into a miracle. Now God, may we, as the messes we are, come to you for your miraculous work. Well, this is our prayer. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. May we meet at the table for communion. Receive God's body in this place.